are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, an extension of birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Here, friends, we get personal. We get political. We talk business. We talk shit. We talk pleasure. We learn and unlearn and find growth by embodying practices of healing and justice. We are your hosts. My name is Eric Guajardo Johnson, and my pronouns are she, they. And my name is Mickey McHenry. My pronouns are she, her. Let's dive in. For those dedicated to healing and justice, for those dedicated to unlearning harmful ways of being and dismantling systemic oppression, for those who weave together social justice and spirituality, there's inevitably a point in our journey where we strongly feel the tension of having a critique about the world and the people and the ways of being around us while simultaneously needing to maintain connection with those people, those places, those systems. Navigating this with integrity, humility, and accountability can be hard. It can be frustrating and it can be exhausting. For so many of us, gender is something that presents itself every day within our work. It is something that can feel liberatory and radical for some. It could feel oppressive and violent for others. Gender can be an aspect of our identity. It could be an aspect of our spirituality. And it can be a tool that can be used for us to have power over others or others having power over us. To help us navigate this nuanced and complex conversation, I've invited our guest Kai Tyson. Kai Tyson, they, them, is an unapologetic Southern queer black femme who enjoys yoga, building community, laughing, subverting the gender binary, and reminding people that they can fire their doctors. Kai is a sacred transition guide, entrepreneur, healer, consultant, and educator. As the founder of Kaluntu Reproductive Justice Center, Kai is working towards a world in which Black women and femmes can live, thrive, and raise healthy families freely within a healthy community. Kai loves to hike, sew, thrift, create art, sing, and dream of a world in which education is intuitive and culturally responsive. They are originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and currently reside in Atlanta. Today's conversation begins with the intersections of gender and decolonial theory. We explore the colonial concept of the gender binary and something called toxic gendering. Kai guides us through multiple examples of how toxic gender has been used specifically within the U.S. to perpetuate systemic violence and how this violence can manifest within and outside the birth room. We explore the intersections of gender and racism, as well as gender and race. And we talk about the complexity of how, for so many of us, 
especially folks who identify as Black, Indigenous, and or people of color. It can be difficult to do this work of deepening our critical understanding of gender while trying to build and deepen connection within our own family and communities, knowing that so many of our cultures are deeply rooted in gendered understanding of labor, of power, etc. In the final section of our conversation, Kai provides some foundational perspectives that can strengthen our ability to connect across differences. And lastly, knowing that so many folks who are listening to this conversation are reproductive care providers, I invite you to consider what are the ways in which you currently are weaving gender in the way that you frame your services, in the way that you promote your services, as well as in the assumptions that you may be making about the folks you serve. Without further ado, friends, let's dive in. Today's conversation is going to be us talking and exploring some critiques around gender. And Kai, friend, before we do that, I would love for us to acknowledge that in a lot of social justice spaces that are centered around decolonial work, that are centered around ancestral reclamation, a lot of times what happens is that our community will refuse to dive into critiques around gender because of this protection around the fact that gender existed in our indigenous traditions. And I would love for us to start this conversation by addressing all of that. Are you down? <laughs> I am down. Yeah. This is I, a big topic, so I get right? it. Right? It's cool with you, friend. I'm just going to like start sharing some of my thoughts and then just dive in, please, and until we create some sort of foundation. Sounds good. All right, sweet. So let the record reflect that gender is something that did not begin with colonizers. It has existed before colonial time. That being said, I want to remind our colleagues that going back to our indigenous traditions, remember that gender was and is expansive in our indigenous traditions. They were not dependent on genitals. However, what's been happening is that in modern times, in colonial realms with colonial words, a lot of times we take the binary understanding of gender and we project it onto ancestral notions. That, I think, is legit for us to critique when we're critiquing gender. Yeah, because really gender is just a way for us to understand ways of being, a way for us to label and, and notice ways that people naturally are, dare I say. I feel like that's what the original version of gender was, was like, hey, we observe some general trends and we're going to put some words to it. And then 
lots of different cultures and lots of different people throughout time have done different things with that. And I, I'm not going to say that gender is a social construct in that it doesn't exist at all, because we see so many different iterations of gender throughout cultures, throughout times. And the system of binary gender that is employed in the United States has been used as more than a categorization system. It's been used as a system of oppression, a system to harm people, but not only to only harm one gender or another, but to harm all of us. And that is the key difference. Like it's one thing to have ancestral or traditional rituals or clothing or language around gender that hopefully, ideally, no one is placed higher or lower than anyone else. But in this system of binary gender, one group of people is placed above the other groups of people. And regardless of whether groups outside of that binary are acknowledged, they do exist. We do exist and we always have. We are the most harmed in the system because the system refuses to label us. And so we are examining this particular iteration of gender in this time, in this world that we exist in now, in this place that we exist in now. And acknowledging that gender exists in a lot of different dimensions, in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different capacities for every single one of us in some way. Yes. Thank you. I love that you threaded out the word power. Like that is what today is going to be exploring is specifically the correlation between power and gender and how by having critiques we're not putting gender in itself on a spectrum of good and bad. Like gender euphoria is a whole thing. And it looks like so many things to so many different people. And that is healing. I think that is medicine to have healthy, nurturing connections to ourselves. And for many of us, that means a vibrant embodiment of a gender expression. So I just want to underline for folks that our conversation today, y'all, is not putting things on the spectrum of good and bad, but it's diving into the nitty gritty. It's diving into the gray area in order for us to become more aware of healing and justice. We have to do this work of more attentively looking at power specifically and how we contribute to this power dynamic. What I've said before is like, because What I've encountered previously is sometimes cisgender women, even sometimes femmes, will feel some type of way if I'm like, gender is toxic. And they're like, but wait, I love my heels and my makeup and my dresses and whatever else. I always remind people that beauty existed before colonized beauty, right? How old is henna? How old is dyeing your clothes, your fabrics? You know, how old is getting your hair styled or cut or braided in a certain way? Like, beauty has existed since the earth has existed. I'm talking about the colonized version of it that says that women have to do this, that you have to shave or groom your body parts or, you know, do these particular things that are ultimately restrictive. That's a whole nother conversation about like clothing and how clothing is used to like restrict movement in girls and women, including the whole pockets thing. But I I feel like I could write a book about that. But like, Clothing is not inherently bad. Beauty is not inherently bad. Makeup and and nice things are not inherently bad. It's the ways that they are used to restrict the ways in which people move through the world. 
Like we right. all deserve to be able to move through the world however we want all day, every day. If you want to paint your whole body purple and walk up and down the street, you know, wearing a disco ball, like do it. That's great. But like, don't <laughs> feel like you have to do it because you're a woman or you can't do it because you're a man or whatever arbitrary rules, like live your life. Just imagine who we would be if we weren't prescribed these roles. Right, right. For those that missed it in Kai's bio, Kai is a power human. Kai (laughs) has produced so much exquisite educational material. And one of the phrases that I've heard you say in recent conversations about the work that you've been working on and, and contemplating is you use the term toxic gendering. So I would love us to start off if you could share what is toxic gendering and then what are some examples of how it has been used to perpetuate violence specifically in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So toxic gendering, it's a reframe of gender dynamics, like a different way of looking at gender dynamics. So instead of looking at toxic masculinity, for example, or looking at a particular type of violence against a particular group of people, looking at all these different actions, I guess, as symptoms of the same disease. So if we're having a conversation about, and these are some examples, um, like a, a few weeks ago, the article came out through Psychology Today about how like men are more likely to be single because of unhealthy relationship dynamics and different things like that. Like that's a big example of this toxic gendering. And, and we could go even further with looking at the household work gap, the child rearing gap in households, um, is usually with heterosexual relationships, but I would venture to say in any relationship with any kind of binary gender dynamics, regardless of how folks identify, if there's a mask person and a femme person, I can probably guess who's doing the work. In the emotional labor gap, in the orgasm gap, there's all these different gaps that they're noticing these huge differences in how usually cis men and cis women experience the same things. And even the the pay gap, I consider that under toxic gendering because that's connected to we are going to treat women and quote unquote women's work, which, you know, women's work is anything that involves the emotions, anything that involves like the soft sciences, quote unquote, like psychology, sociology, anthropology, any study of humanity, anything that involves emotions, anything that involves writing or art or any anything besides numbers and hard science and quote unquote logic and, you know, the scientific method. But what has happened, in my opinion, is there has been a systemic devaluing of human interaction, of the emotional labor that goes along with that, of making friends and having healthy relationships. Like all those things have been devalued because they fall into the bucket of women's work. And now you see this deeply imbalanced society where people don't know how to identify their emotions. People don't know how to interact with each other without objectifying one another. People don't know how to just relate to another human on a human level without immediately, as soon as you look at them, putting them in at least one box, if not multiple, right? As soon as you look at someone, you put somebody in a gender box, you put them in a racial box or you attempt to, or an ethnic box, You try to peg their age. You try to figure out, do they look like they're from here or do they look like they're from somewhere else? 
how fast does it take our brains to do that when you see a picture of someone or you meet someone in person? So gender is one of the first ways that we categorize people in our brains and the ways that we interact with each other changes based off of what we perceive. If we perceive someone as feminine, we're going to talk to them and treat them a certain way. If we perceive someone as masculine, we're going to talk to them and treat them a certain way. The ways that we've been taught to treat each other are deeply harmful. And it's not just men. It's not just cis men who are also treating each other in harmful ways, treating other cis men or women in in harmful ways. It's also cis women who are taught to manipulate and to do a lot of silent coercion to get what they want because women don't have the strength, so they have to do things in a, in a sneaky way or in a sly way. We're taught that. We're taught that from childhood. And it takes a lot to unlearn it. You don't even realize how much of that is in there. I don't realize it until I'm around kids. And I'll catch myself, like if I'm talking to someone who I perceive to be a boy child, I'm going to say certain words like, hey, buddy, hey, you know, like more like masculine words. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like I catch myself. And that's one reason why I like to work in childcare because it keeps me fresh. I feel like with how am I perpetuating these gender dynamics in my day to day life? Because the most overly saturated time that we are attempting to socialize children into gender, people into gender, is during childhood and especially like toddlerhood and, and early elementary school. That's when we're very clearly saying boys don't do this. Girls don't do this. Boys do do this. Girls do do that. And, you know, how do you talk to your kids? How do you talk to the kids in your community? And how do you talk to them differently? Another example is that literally parents say fewer words to their boy children than their girl children. And so this starts from before the baby is born, like once the parents find out the sex of the baby, they immediately change the ways that they interact with that baby, with that fetus before it's again, before it's born. And that affects the child's entire life. One effect is that by elementary school age, there's a word gap. Girls have more words in their vocabularies than boys. And there's an assumption that that evens out eventually. But as we then hear in later elementary school that boys are good at math and girls are good at language, I wonder where that came from. Maybe from how we're literally not talking to our babies in the same way. So then you have a grown man who can't label his emotions and he's punching holes in the wall. Right. And the way that science does or does not, and I say science with air quotes, because a lot of times what we've known about research studies is that research studies, especially folks who fund them, they're done with a desired outcome. Right. Of course, we are going to have a lot of studies that show the differences in the brain developmentally. But then it goes back to the whole nature versus nurture kind of thing. Exactly. Where it's like, how valid is this Is this research, right? The fact that it was done in a very specific culture. Yeah, and, and a lot of those, I'm sorry to interrupt, but a lot of those no, no, studies, especially around parenting, are done on upper middle class white families, heterosexual, married. So that's a big thing too, is that we don't even have a lot of research for our families and our children. Yes. Because, you know, those are not the studies that are getting funded, like you were saying. I love that we started, or rather that you started with talking about youth and talking about raising babies. Because one of the things that's coming through, again, for me, as I'm rooting into our conversation today, is knowing that both of us are folks of color and we come from different backgrounds. 
and knowing that specifically in our communities, raising kids in a gendered way is often given with the excuse of needing to protect them. That was one of the things that I have as a Mexican girl raised is that part of me being feminized is me being aware of my vulnerability and how to protect myself, quote unquote, and how to associate myself with people who can protect me, aka how to be beautiful and be serving men and appeasing men and blah, blah, you know? And then similarly, I've heard that in relation to boys and not wanting to coddle them because they're going to be picked on. And they learn their sense of worth now. And it's hard being a boy. And so so this goes back to, again, power. And one of the biggest notions for the gender binary is to try to protect the kids. Yeah. From the same system that we're perpetuating. Yeah. (laughs) No, and that's the the thing about toxic gender. Like, the more I look at it, the, the more I'm like, American society, United States society is perpetuated by us, by the populace. I don't want to say individuals because we're not individuals. We we are social and collective creatures, obviously, but like we police each other when it comes to gender, race, ableism. Like there's so many different ways that we police each other on a day-to-day basis. And I think going back to the history of this country and the history of white colonialism and white people literally creating these differences, right? Creating whiteness as they are stealing this land and killing people and and relocating people forcibly and stealing people and all the things that they're doing. They were creating whiteness, but they were also, there's this notion with colonization that like the colonizer is the advanced society. The colonizer society is the advanced society and everyone else is a savage and they will as they go, create the criteria for being a savage versus being a an upstanding citizen or whatever. And, and what that boils down to is the proximity to whiteness, right? Of how close can we emulate whiteness to be able to be safe? And so similarly to our parents teaching us to code switch, our parents teaching us, you know, how to interact with white authority figures, our parents teaching us how to exist when they're outside the house. You know, if you're at somebody else's house, this is what you need to know. If you're at school, this is what you need to know. It's all rooted in safety, but the things that they're teaching us, it's the proximity to whiteness of, this is how white people perform gender. And I'm gonna teach you as close to that as possible so that you can blend in as much as possible because you're already black, you're already, uh, you're already Mexican, you're already indigenous, you're already, you know, not speaking English or you're already these identities that you can't help. But I'm going to hopefully show you how to present or, or show up in, a, in the society to minimize harm. And so yes. for boys, that means I need to show you how to be masculine. I need to show you how to fight back. I need to show you how to protect your sisters. I need to show you how to, even if you're the smallest kid, to be able to hold your own or else you're going to get beat up every day. You're going to be the feminine boy that everybody is making fun of. And we see that intersection with queerness and with gender and sexuality of mm-hmm. even if you are queer, for a lot of us and a lot of our families, like it's a little bit easier to swallow if your gender is still normative, right? It's it like, okay, 
you like girls, but at least you still have your long hair. That's a lot of families, right? The long hair, you still wear your dresses, you still wear makeup and earrings. That lessens the blow a little bit because their ultimate concern is our safety. And unexamined, that shows up as, I taught you the ways to be normative. Why are you not doing it? I'm trying to keep you safe. How dare you do this other thing? I gave you as much of the blueprint as I knew. Why are you not following it and keeping you and by extension, our whole family safe? Right. So this notion of safety, I want to redirect a little bit because in our preparation for this conversation, you had brought up something that I thought was so legit, especially for us who work within the realms of reproductive care. And that is how a big aspect of femininity, specifically white femininity, is the infantizing of of women. Would you speak more about, yeah, your thoughts around that, how that shows up? Yeah, that's... It's a fascinating topic because this is, it's really important to examine the infantilization of women. You have to examine it from a racialized perspective because as women are infantilized, and I'll give some examples in a second, but as women are infantilized at the same exact time, black women are masculinized and adultified, I think is the word, but they, black women are not given the opportunity to be seen as small, as dainty, not that that's necessarily a good thing, but Black women are not given the protection, for example, that white women are given. And and that's where we see like the fat phobia. And if you're not in this small woman package that we think women should look like, then we are going to, we're going to reprimand you. That's where colorism also comes in of, you know, if you're dark skin, if you're fat, if you're tall, if you talk to a tall woman above like five eight five nine. They will have some stories, I can almost guarantee you, because people are really weird about tall women. We have that adultification, especially of Black girls, you know, the intersection of age and childhood into all this, because as women are being infantilized, grown women, Black girls are not given a girlhood. They're not given a childhood. They're not given the opportunity to exist innocently. But we see the infantilization of women when you look at like beauty standards, And that's where a lot of that gender piece comes in too, is like, we like small women who have high voices and who look like children, basically have no curves, don't have a deep voice, don't have stretch marks, don't have body hair, all these different things, because ultimately we want to be able to control you as much as possible. And that's where the grooming conversation, honestly, of like kids and teenagers comes in too, that you want this, this young, impressionable person that you can coerced to be whoever you want them to be because you don't see children and and young people as people. And so then if you're infantilizing grown women, then you don't have to see grown women as people either. Right. And I think specifically, again, going back to birth work, so many birth workers are in this work actively engaging in a savior mentality. And saviorism, I'm pretty sure we've In this podcast, it's been referenced at least once or twice, but saviorism within birth work is very much tied into white saviorism and is very much tied into specifically white Christian women saviorism. And I've been trying to convince King Ya to actually give another workshop on that because they dive in so, so powerfully into those intersections. But yeah, so many quote unquote well-intended birth workers come in here thinking that they are coming in to save women and to tell 
I'm going to tell you how you're going to have an empowered birth. I'm going to tell you how you are going to reclaim on behalf of your ancestors and behalf of your daughter, you know, like it's just another regurgitation of women being infantized and then knowing too how we see that 1 million percent being perpetrated by medical providers yeah in terms of the way that they take up space and perpetuate power in the birth room and also going back to the masculinization of black women just thinking how very different but also very similar indigenous women yeah because there's a lot of indigenous bodies that are also strong and shorter and they take up more space and this assumption from care providers that you walk in, you see that coding, and you assume they're going to be the, the client or the patient is going to be aggressive, mm. going to be a problem, going to push back, doesn't need care, doesn't yeah. need tenderness. Empathy. Right? Um, exactly. Yeah. We also know, too, just the specifically on Black and Indigenous bodies, this it just, I don't know why I continue to be surprised by racist fuckery, but still how, I think it was like two years ago, there was like another study that went out to show how medical providers unapologetically still are teaching black and indigenous bodies have different pain tolerance. Like, like it's like, <laughs> what the fuck? I, that blows my, it, it blows my mind because... There's multiple pieces of racist science that have been debunked multiple times for a long time, yet they still exist. And it, I don't, I don't understand why. Like, I don't get what the benefit would be. You just walked us through so many examples of how toxic gender is perpetuated in our society. And then we also did a little bit of outlining in reproductive care. I'm going to lead us out of this topic because the other thing that I really want to talk about is how so many of us specifically folks of color we come from communities that are very enriched in binary notions of gender and one of the things that I have struggled with as I do all this work to learn and unlearn toxic ways of being and then there comes to a point where I'm like okay now I'm going to take this home and I'm going to use it in my conversations with my family, in my community, how to support those around us, how to create shifts within our own spaces. Before I actually dive into hearing your thoughts about how you have navigated that, I first want to ask you if you could start by sharing what are some strategies that you do to help you connect across differences? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of the work because ultimately – no two people are the same. So anytime we're connecting with someone, there's going to be some sort of difference. And I think that's important to acknowledge because if you go and you think like, oh, I'm going to have this conversation and we're going to be on the same page and everything's going to be great. Like that's, you got to manage your expectations first and foremost. Like there's probably going to be somewhere where you disagree for whatever reason. And so I think that's a big piece of it. But I think it's really important to start with listening, to really start with what are you hearing people talk about? So for example, I'm thinking of like my mom, if I want to talk to her about how gender is toxic and she needs to not support my cousin's gender reveal party, then I want to start with what I've heard her say 
that I can connect somehow to gender. So maybe she's saying like, oh, your dad never picks up his dirty clothes from the floor. Like I can start there and say, well, you know, there's a there's a gender household housework gap where, you know, women do X amount more housework than men, blah, blah, blah. Like it, it could be something like that, but really listening, like what is their experience and how are they embodying something that you are passionate about and like how can you make that connection between those two things by noticing what matters to them and what their day-to-day life is like i really really deeply appreciate that answer and so my mom transcribes the podcasts and i i know my mom's probably going to be nodding her head that is one of the things that i struggle with the most when it comes to going back to my family specifically, is that I get so wrapped up in anticipating conflict and anticipating difference that I start off on the offensive, I where it's like a top down. Yeah. Where it's like, I'm going to tell you what is right. And of course, A, that's fucked up. That's, yeah. that's fucked up in so many ways. Yeah. But B, that's, that's not connection. Yeah. That's making someone feel small. And I really love, again, this like intergenerational example because a lot of our social justice movements nowadays, there's disconnection yeah. between us working with older generations because of quote unquote problematic X, Y, Z. And it's like, and that is the language, that is the framework, that is the meaning making that they have lived. And so yeah. how can we listen and connect to Sorry, I'm just reflecting back what I love so much about what you said is that it's based on listening. It's based on connection. It's based on having sincere interests on what our people find meaningful and then meeting them where they're at and coming at this also, I love like the the visual I had was you're coming at this with open hands where in that analogy with your mom, you were using your mom's lived experience And then guiding her to the question of, have you considered that what you shared about the clothes on the floor is connected to this thing about whether it's a a boy or a girl? Yeah. I love that. That's so powerful. I think too, for a lot of black and brown folks, if you like went to college or did any kind of book learning, basically for a lot of folks, for whatever reason, it can be delicate because a lot of us, we get excited and we learn about these things. And it's like, I want to teach my mom about, you know, radical third wave feminism, but like, <laughs> you got to read the room a little bit, but like the first thing we get shut down and like, oh, you went to this school and you learned blah, blah, blah. And now you're too good for us. Or, you know, like we've heard so many variations of that. And like, that's a shutdown. That means they are not listening anymore. You might as well just hang it up, try it again next time because the whatever it was in that person was triggered for lack of a better word. And and then they shut down. And so you kind of have to anticipate that, especially if, if you've been through this rodeo before, because I, I know, I know what to say. I'm not perfect at it, but I know that there's some things that are a little more inflammatory and there's other things that I can say, and it's a little bit more gentle maybe. And it's a, yeah. maybe a less steep of an incline to get from point A to point B. Yeah. I appreciate that finesse. Finesse is something I've only learned in community. I've only learned through listening to other people's experiences, their mistakes, their strategies, and just looking at the time. Can you speak to some of your experiences being in community spaces? Like, How did you approach talking about things when you're trying to encourage your community 
to consider other ways of being. Yeah, honestly, the housework gap gets a lot of people. I think it's finding what's highly relatable and kind of using that as an end or even just reframing things that people see as common. And so when I've had this conversation in community, whether I'm putting on a training or I'm at a forum or something, I talk about the ways in which we teach children how to perform gender and what we expect of them and how that connects to the experiences of adult cis women usually. And so I have a slide in one of my trainings and it has different onesies that have, you know, very, very lovely messages on them. And I'm sure as a birth worker, you've probably seen some of the onesies that have weird messages on them. Like, why are we, why? Just let's start there. Why? Right. Um, Like heartbreaker. Yeah. And I'm like, y'all, this baby is like two weeks out. They literally just got here and you are literally writing heartbreaker across their chest or like one of them was little mommy. Gender assumptions aside, assuming that this person grows up to be a cisgender woman, you're also already like assuming they're going to be a mother as well. And, you know, like kitchen sets and like play cleaning supplies and stuff like that, like Because now that we have all this research that keeps coming out about how women keep getting the short end of the stick, how else would we perpetuate the system besides convincing children that it's normal? Because as adults, the vast majority of us, the reason why it's so relatable and people catch on so quickly when I connect it to housework and household labor, emotional labor, child rearing is because it's universal. That's what we're taught. We're taught that the girl, the woman cooks and cleans and takes care of the children. And the man goes out and with boys toys specifically, they're all about like dinosaurs and animals or like exploration or action or violence. It's not just that men go out and work. It's like men go out and do the most like violent thing possible. Or like the men go out and like build a whole building. Like, it's not just like he goes out and he farms or, you know, you might see some farmer toys every so often, but it's usually like ninja space explorer not just that a man gets a job but he gets like he becomes a stunt guy i guess i don't know it's conquering yeah oh my right? it it's is conquering oh, I, you're right actually that word never came to mind until you just outlined all those examples it's conquering right? you're absolutely right like the men go out and conquer and the women raise the children and ensure that they can continue to conquer for another generation like i just as we're <sighs> laying this all out that onesie that you just framed, the little mommy, that one, I had a body response because I feel both. I come from a culture where motherhood is something that's simultaneously sacred and is exploitative. Yeah. And it's also a term of endearment. And just as the critique is, right, it's also coding about labor and value. Talk about finesse to be able to have these conversations with people who have so much healing and strength from cisgendered, maternal, hyper-feminine expressions of being, how to do the both ands, like how to honor that, especially knowing that we live in a patriarchal, misogynistic world. So yeah, embracing femininity and embracing womanhood, it is an act of revolution. Yeah. And, right, it could be the both and. So, like, how can we support people in connecting to their power 
while also creating space for this other part. And I have one last question to close us off, but I want to see if you have any thoughts before I shift gears again. I have lots of thoughts, but for the sake of time, I will say I'm good. I just want everyone to know that we did so much prep for this interview because there's so many things that need to be said in so many directions that could. I just, we did a great fucking job. Yeah. This topic was huge. And by we, I mostly mean you. You (laughs) did an amazing job and I did a good job trying to contain myself in response to your brilliance. I really wanted to continue in this thread of the next generation. If you could wave a magic wand, if you could lay an offering at the feet of our next generation, what is the blessing that you would like to bestow? Yeah. The next generation, I feel like they are already doing so good, honestly. And as you, we collectively are reframing the ways in which we see how life can be, and how living can be, I always want to encourage the next generation to not forget to look back and not forget to learn from our ancestors and our elders. I think it comes with age because I have only started feeling this the past couple of years where I'm like, oh, that's why they were like forcing me to talk to my grandparents because this is important. People don't last forever and, and these stories can be lost. And There's so many ways that humans have existed throughout time, whether it's on Turtle Island or wherever your ancestors came from. Like we were existing in so many expansive ways. And a lot of the things we have questions about, our ancestors had answers to. And even if we are not taught that, it's crucial for us to do some of that learning because a lot of the things that we're questioning and we're reframing and we are shaping now, this isn't the first time that this has happened. How many centuries have humans existed? Like the fact that we only have a few thousand years of recorded history and that's only some cultures, that's not even a drop in the bucket. You know how many different ways humans have existed? Yeah, we can create something new, but we can also use the past and our heritage and our traditions to inform that new thing. And I think that's what culture is. Like I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like culture isn't meant to be stagnant. You know, whatever your culture is, isn't meant to be the same it was a hundred years ago. Even if nothing bad happened and all good things happen, cultures evolve, language evolves, people evolve. And we like to go back and recycle old things and we like to add a little bit something new to it to make it a little different. And You know, that's our job. And don't forget to do the part where you go back and learn what people have done before because it's it's crucial and it can it can save a lot of headache and heartache. Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. Be sure to check out show notes for a list of resources mentioned during today's episode. Are you interested in learning more about the intersections discussed today? Visit birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Offerings range from pre-recorded courses, ebooks, live workshops, and more. Want to keep this podcast running? First, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Second, visit birthbruja.com and check out our store to purchase apparel with one of many badass designs. Until next time, friends, 
Thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.